today on Owl Have You Know. In order to build trust at scale and expeditiously, you need platforms that are one to many. So I'm all about building trust one to one, but I want to build trust faster. So I wanted to get on a one-to-many platform, such as a podcast. There's many other ways to do it as well. So that was the impetus for me. We are launching a special episode of I'll Have You Know. My name is Scott Gale, and I am here with David Drugweaver, who you all know as the co-host of the I'll Have You Know podcast. But we're flipping the script a little bit with David, and we're putting him in the hot seat to give him an opportunity to tell his story and share a bit more about his journey, his experience with Rice, and just thrilled at the opportunity to be here with you today, David. Well, thank you for having me, Scott. I'm glad we set this up. I'm excited. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, I am uh, here because I sit on the Rice Business Alumni Association board uh, and helping to uh, look after the podcast, excited about where it's come from and where it's going. And so just want to get to know you better as a, as a host. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time digging in. So I just want to start kind of right out of the gates and just ask you, why do you get out of bed in the morning? Yeah, well, that's my question. <laughs> <laughs> you stole that. I know you did. <laughs> okay, this is my banner cry. Uh, I am on the trust war path. The thing that I care about just singularly is building trust. The planet needs trust, our country needs trust, our institutions need trust, our academia needs trust, our individual relationships need trust. The clear mission and directive for the planet is to build trust with each other and to dismantle distrust, period, full stop. That is what we need to do. If COVID hasn't shown to you that trust is the issue, I don't know what else will. So that's clear for me going forward, whether it's doing things like this, getting to know people, my next job situation or work or whatever vocation it is or community I'm looking to build. It's all built on the principle that trust can build anything. You can grow everything through trust and solve any intractable problem through trust. And there is no greater suffering that can be caused by the building of distrust. So trust is the way forward. What are the biggest barriers to trust? Just to kind of double click in as someone that's thinking a lot about it. Yeah, it just depends how deep you want to go. And I've actually published my own clear text manifesto. It's at trustmanifesto.energy where all these ideas are laid out in about a 6,000 word manifesto. The first issue is actually not out there. Most people think that the trust is out there. It's that person. It's mm. that government entity. It's somewhere out there. Actually, the issue of trust starts with yourself. Mm. You cannot have trust if you don't have self-trust. You must trust yourself first, and then you can start to build trust with yourself and other people. So self-trust is where you start. Are there sort of ways to kind of self-diagnose that? Like if I'm listening to this and I'm 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 locked in. I'm like, yeah, uh, trust. That sounds like a thing. Like what, what are some of the first kind of ways for people to kind of engage with that? I love that question. And this is an ongoing process to learn this. And there are certain ways to diagnose. First of all, you can look at your existing relationships. Do you trust the people that are around you? Do they trust you? And frankly, the fastest way to do it is to just ask, do you trust me? <laughs> and have a direct conversation around that. And that's what I propose and advocate for in my manifesto. 
it's a scary conversation to have because you don't want to hear the other person say, actually, <laughs> you know, right? Some vulnerability is it's required a, to step into that. It requires vulnerability. And that is also one barrier to building trust. You must be vulnerable to build trust. Another way to self-diagnose that doesn't require anybody else is how long can you sit with yourself with no external inputs coming in and be still? If you can't get past about a minute, you, there is something inside of you that you are pushing against. Hmm. So the more time you can just be still, be mindful, you don't have to do anything. You don't even have to think anything, but can you just be still? That's a really good proxy and direct measurement of how much self-trust you have of many. This is awesome. Uh, a lot of actionable insight. I think for sure we should include kind of the link to in the show notes and we'll kind of make that accessible. I'm curious here, like trust is kind of the, the, the banner cry, as you said, is there sort of a spark or a moment where that kind of hit your radar as the thing that you wanted to kind of focus on? Was it a series of moments or can you share a little bit of that kind of spark moment? Oof. Okay. So there's multiple, of course, growing up, there were moments of trust that was broken in my corporate careers. There, there's been a lot. I would say if I had to pick one, being in business to business technology sales, it's very clear to me, you cannot do anything without building trust with your customer. Mm -hmm. You're not really selling anything. You're actually just building trust because you can't sell anything if you don't have trust with your customer and the organizations don't trust each other. Yeah. So that's the spark moment for me. I'm trying to close multi seven, eight figure deals. And if the customer on the other end of the line or in front of me doesn't trust me or my organization, nothing happens. So that's the spark for me. When I look at my deals that if they're not moving as fast as I want, it's always trust. It's always trust, especially at the end of a sales cycle. It's the classic fun. If you've been in sales for a while, it's fear, uncertainty, doubt that, it, that hockey sticks up at the end of the sales cycle. So if you have enough trust, the customer says, stop talking, send me the DocuSign. <laughs> but if you don't have enough trust, you have to disentangle the fear, uncertainty, and doubt. So it's really B2B sales for me that became the spark of why trust is paramount. Interesting. And anybody that's been in a sales role understands that, you know, there's always some kind of contract or agreement that comes together, but you can't close every risk, every potential upside or downside risk in a contract, in a contractual agreement. And so ultimately it's, yeah, the other person that you're doing business with, can, can you come to an agreement on all those fringe cases that you're not able to sort of capture and put into words in an agreement? Um, I'm interested in, in bringing sort of together these, these two worlds, one that you've highlighted around trust and how you kind of, the lens through which you're experiencing the world and see the world and building relationships and that intersection with podcasting, what, how do those things sort of intersect in terms of how you think about them? Yeah. I, I love the questions you're asking because I've spent so long thinking about this already. <laughs> so you're, you're pressing all the right buttons. So the reason I wanted to get into podcasting. So of course we have the owl have, you know, podcast. And by the way, if you haven't subscribed already, what's wrong with you? <laughs> and secondly, I have my own personal podcast. I call soft, but stronger. And, and, and I'm doing certain things with that in the future. So that some things are going to change. But here's where it intersects with trust is in order to build trust at scale and expeditiously, you need platforms that are one to many. So I'm all about building trust one to one. 
but I want to build trust faster. So I wanted to get on a one-to-many platform such as a podcast. There's many other ways to do it as well. So that was the impetus for me. And before that, I ought to have said that doing the podcast is a act of building self-trust. How do you build trust? You do things that you're not comfortable with. You do things that challenge you. And I was not comfortable with hopping on the mic like I am now. This is like, I'm flowing, baby. <laughs> you know? And so with my personal podcast, I mean, I was a little jittery on that first episode. In fact, I didn't want to push it out. But after I kept burning those reps, I was building more and more and more self-trust. So putting yourself out there, being transparent, being vulnerable, which is what happens on a podcast that's a trust building project. So with yourself and you're letting other people know who you are, what you stand for. So you're building trust with people that are tuning in. Can you share a bit with the audience kind of your process for preparing a guest to be on the show so that you start to kind of establish that foundation so that the the conversation goes, we'll say well, whatever that air quotes well, whatever that means. Can you share a bit about the the process and kind of the goals? For sure. That? And that's evolved also. Initially, I would have a bunch of prep calls and what have you. And then over time, I realized that I could just build trust real time in <laughs> the conversation. And I don't do much editing because I think that putting things out that are air quotes too perfect actually doesn't build trust from my view. I think being a little rough around the edges and allowing yourself to be a little raw and imperfect actually builds trust. So I don't try to go for perfection on my podcast. So in terms of preparation, there's really not that much. I share with folks that are coming on my trust manifesto. I also let them know what my principles are. Um, trust, of course, being one of the top ones. And I also just let them know in advance, like, hey, we're we're going to go after huge questions. I'm going to ask big questions that are going to challenge you. And that's pretty much it. And a lot of folks that come on my podcast, they're ready to go. They're rearing to go. And they know that, especially when you just look at Sapa Stronger, I mean, it's about being vulnerable and in pursuit of human flourishing mm -hmm. and, of course, building trust. So there's really not too much to prepare, um, especially since most of my work is already out there in public. So by the time they show up, they're ready to go. That's fantastic. I want to pivot just a little bit to kind of dig into kind of the the chronology or kind of the arc of your story. And so wherever we want to start that, I'm curious in terms of how you've kind of made the decision to go pursue the undergrad that you did, for example. What got you to Georgia Tech? <laughs> well, first... <laughs> First and foremost, I applied to Rice University and was rejected. So <laughs> I hold nothing against Rice at all, I way. promise. Yeah, <laughs> the obstacle is the way. Ryan Holiday, love that. And so I applied to Georgia Tech as well as I think Carnegie Mellon as well. So I got accepted to Georgia Tech. I wanted to go to the most prestigious engineering university I could get into. And I was good with leaving Houston proper where I, I grew up. So that was pretty much why I went to Georgia Tech. And I figured travel and um, get out of the house and challenge myself at one of the toughest engineering institutions that's out there. As an engineer myself, I sort of had a, you know, a journey while in school. I'd just be curious in the sense that what was it that sort of honed you into that first job out of undergrad? Ooh, okay. Well, so there's a couple things. Georgia Tech also had a cooperative education program. So I was working full-time for NASA Johnson Space Center 
after freshman year. So I interviewed with NASA the first year, got accepted. They liked my 4.0 after the first year, which never happens. I know, I know. I'm like super humble, right? And so so I, I started working at NASA every other semester in the cooperative education program. In 2003, after my second year at Georgia Tech, I got accepted into the NUPOC program, which is Nuclear Propulsions Officer Candidate Program in the United States Navy. I can talk a lot about what that looked like, you know, if you want to go into that. But that's what I decided to do since I didn't want to work at NASA after I graduated. So after I graduated, I then went from NUPOC to Officer Candidate School out into the Nuclear Submarine Force. Why the Navy? because <laughs> the Nothing uniforms are cool man white sexy uniforms you know <laughs> all jokes aside i thought that with as i was in good health i was of sound mind and i wanted to do the hardest thing possible mm. literally and when i started learning more about the military and the submarine force particularly the book blind man's bluff is one of the most amazing books about submarines out there and it shared some of the stuff that had been classified for a very long time. And I said, that sounds cool. That's novel. So I wanted to do what was hard and what was novel. And so I bird dogged it for the United States Navy. And also when I found out that in order to get in, you have to interview with a four-star admiral. It's the only job in the military. You have to personally interview with a four-star flag officer to get in. And it was Admiral Skip Bowman, March 20th of 2003, that I interviewed with him at Naval Reactors in Washington, DC. That was really exciting. So I thought I knew I was into something big when I was going through that process. So I said, let's do it. I'm ready. That's awesome. Did it live up to those expectations? And more. <laughs> I signed up for a lot. I bit off definitely more than I think that I can chew. I learned a lot in the Navy. And in the end, it was best to move on to corporate. <laughs> <laughs> How did all of that experience prepare you for an experience at Rice and sort of all of the subsequent things that you've gone and pursued? Yeah, it's it's really all about leadership. And leadership is about building trust with the people around you. And what I saw in the command that I was at was a meltdown of trust. And when the people that you're working with are challenged with trusting each other, it gets very dangerous, especially when you're operating a nuclear reactor. You have to trust the character, the integrity, and the credibility of the people that you're working with. The beauty of the nuclear Navy is that by way of the structure of how people are trained to get in, first of all, they only pick the best of the best. So that's thing one. Thing two is the, the training and is so rigorous and arduous and it weeds out the weak. And so by the time you start to work with people, you don't know anything about them, but you know that you've gone through very rigorous, arduous accreditations to get to that point. So what is that process I just described? It's a process of building trust with each other because you can't sit down and get to know each other for 20 years before you say, okay, now you can push the big red button. <laughs> you have to trust each other the second you start working together. So that's the thing I learned. Leadership is building trust. And when you have enough trust, you can do things like operate $2 billion warships with basically a skeleton crew of 135 people or so. And that's an amazing thing. 
All right. So tell us uh, a little bit about just sort of your connectivity with the rice community and kind of how that has evolved over time and, and what is special about that in your mind? First and foremost, it's a prestigious institution to be associated with. So that's the obvious, right? <laughs> you know, that's why we're here. The second thing about it is, and and this is the thing, when I was in business school, what did I focus on? Was it academics? No. In fact, I told myself I just wanted to make straight B's. Why? Because anything above that is I'm taking away from networking and building relationships. So the first thing, and I know it's so cliche, but it's, it's the relationships. I wanted to go in and make lifelong friends, and I have done that. And so, of course, that's the most special thing to me. The second thing is what we're doing right now is this. this. When we talk about the power of the rice business community, this is it. It's happening right now. <laughs> so the fact that this happened so fluidly starting from two years ago when we started this, and now we're here in this amazing studio recording, that's the power of rice business right there. And we can do so much more too, oh, by the way. So that's what's special to me when I think about rice business. I take the opportunity to kind of shout out to the Digital Wildcatters for hosting us here at their site, and we're using their facilities. And so uh, for those that aren't plugged into the podcasts that are available there on the Digital Wildcatters platform, we'll make sure and put some of that in the show notes as well, just as a as an appreciation for letting us uh, come and hang out. They've got uh, one of their energy tech nights tonight, so they've got a little bit of a skeleton crew as well. So it's awesome to be here. I want to round out the chronology a little bit and just kind of you've been on what you've kind of described as a radical sabbatical for a couple of uh, uh, weeks and months. And we'll say, as you look ahead to kind of the future, what's next for you, David? Well, it's interesting when you can do anything, what do you do? <laughs> what do you do? And so I've done the podcasting. I've been in cybersecurity and sales. I've done professional services. I've worked in government and the military, so on and so forth. So the ideal next move synergizes all of that. And so there are a couple options. I think one option is to go deeper into helping the veteran business leaders out there that are in tech. So I'd like to work with more and more startups and early stage companies and help to build out and flesh out their sales strategy. That's something that I would very much love to do. And I'm in a very unique position where I could work with a large amount or a portfolio of companies. And frankly, uh, I'm not an inexpensive person, but equity is very appealing to me <laughs> as opposed to cash. So uh, <laughs> at this season. So I think that would be really, really great. And similarly, going into venture capital and doing something similar would also uh, be of interest to me. The thing that is even of more interest going back to the first topic that we chatted about is, is this a high trust organization? Do the leaders have trust as one of their top values? That's the thing I care about the most. Then we can have a conversation around how we can accelerate your organization. There's also a great book out there, just a little nugget for folks tuning in, is The Speed of Trust by Stephen M.R. Covey. So the son of Stephen Covey that you're book. probably thinking of. Mm -hmm. Awesome book. I definitely recommend reading that. So when you infuse your organization with trust, every, every business metric that you could possibly care about ratchets up or gets optimized. And 
this is what I want to do with business leaders is to put that front and center. So that's the only thing they're thinking about all the time, because it really is the only thing that matters. So whatever it is I do going forward, it's conversations about trust with leaders that have strong influence over large groups of people. And I want to have conversations just like this. That's what I really want to do. Awesome. Looking forward to seeing kind of where the next steps kind of take you. I think that's fantastic. Um, is there anything in your journey that we haven't touched on? I want to dig into a few other things, but just sort of, I like to just think about the chronology or there, uh, you mentioned you grew up here in Houston. You've kind of been in the Texas area, went to Georgia tech. Um, any key sort of inflection points along your journey that have sort of pointed you in the direction that you're on today? Mm. I think it's the confluence of everything. The one that we haven't touched on is jujitsu. Okay. So I've done let's 13. Talk about that. Yeah, let's talk about it. <laughs> so I've I've been training jujitsu for about 13 years, give or take. And I got my black belt from Professor Alan Moeller at Moeller MMA in MMA's mixed martial arts in Dallas, Texas last year. Great respect for him as a leader, as a community leader, and of course as a jiu-jitsu practitioner. And jujitsu, like trust infuses and colors everything that I think about. Why? Because jiu-jitsu is not about just beating people up. It's not about breaking bones or choking people out. It's a philosophy, first and foremost. And I know I'm going to get so many eye rolls for saying that, <laughs> you know, but if you go back to the history of judo, there's a great book called Mind Over Muscle by Kano, last name Kano, K-A-N-O, and jujitsu came from judo. So really, it's just a next milestone in the progression of the martial art. And what is it really about? It's about creating the most leverage with the energy that you have available to you. So it's really about being more skillful with your energy. And you can apply this principle, of course, on the mats, in a fight, in business, and in also your personal relationships and everything in between. The thing is, we have one life that we know of, and we have only so much energy. The question is not how much will you do or can you do? The question is, how skillful are you going to be in the application of the energy that you have available to you? Some of us have high levels, some of us have lower levels, and you have the cards that you've been dealt, and do the most with it. And jujitsu is one modality of optimizing your energy. And you can apply that into business. It's a strategy to be uh, applied and used. And uh, there's no situation that I can think of where jujitsu is not applicable. So I think that's the one thing that has, when I think about the domains of knowledge that I've boned up on, jujitsu overlaid onto that amplifies all other principles in addition to trust. So it's this huge, very, very powerful energy ball that just is applicable to anything that you can do. I love that. How has, I guess I'm just trying to think in the sense of your, your, your philosophy of life. You, you have spent a lot of time achieving, optimizing, uh, getting to sort of that pinnacle of the things that you've, you, you have set your sights on for those that are listening, how, how is your kind of self-improvement 
uh, approach or methodology? What are some of the, the, the tactical kind of, what, kind of a day in the life of David? Like what are the things that you're spending your time on thinking about? How do you, how do you put those into practice to kind of accomplish the things that, that we've talked about? There's a couple of things that's coming up. I did want to talk a little bit in terms of the combination of jujitsu and sales, uh, but I want to answer your first your question first. Okay. And what <laughs> the day in the life? This is this is really fun. So what comes up for me is the hard way is the easy way. The easy way is the hard way. I always go into more and more complexity. If you couldn't tell already, <laughs> I go to complex to then go back to simple. So I widen the aperture of complexity, sort of expanding the length and width of the chessboard in order to winnow it down to one piece or one square, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So when I say the easy way is the hard way or the hard way is the easy way, when I wake up, one of the first things I think about as I plan my day is what frog do I need to eat first? And I'm borrowing this from someone else. so I'm not taking credit for it, but the frog is the thing that you don't want to do, but you know you need to do, and you know it's the most important thing to do, and you've just, you're so tempted to put it off. <laughs> but you know, once you've eaten that frog, you're going to get a lot of mileage out of that application of your energy. So, and it's similar with jujitsu. It's, I have just a little bit of energy left. What's the most leverage I can create with this move? And where should I concentrate all my, my energy in order to end the fight fastest? So the eat the frog concept is very, very similar. It's That's that one project, that one action item that gives me the most leverage. And you do that first thing in the morning before anything else can clutter up your day and get in the way of your priorities. You eat that frog, you know, you high five yourself, you pat yourself on the back, you go have an extra cup of coffee <laughs> and then you go on to the next frog and you just do that all throughout the day. That's what a day in the life looks like for me. How do you know it's the biggest frog? Well, that comes back down to values. So whatever builds trust fastest. So as we talked about, that's my top value. Whatever builds trust fastest, that's the frog that I will eat first. I love it. Um, you had mentioned that you wanted to go back to a couple of things on kind of the intersection of, of jujitsu and trust. Were there some other points that you wanted to share? Absolutely. Jiu-Jitsu and sales. So in sales, what is the number one resource of a salesperson? That top resource, and it's for all of us, but in sales in particular, is time. It's so tempting for salespeople to have nice, easy conversations with that person who loves your product and service and your personality but it's not the executive, it's not the change agent, it's not even the champion, but hey, you can run down the clock having a good conversation. Well, that's not a skillful use of your energy. I would much rather, and this is to all the salespeople out there, it is much better to have one conversation that week with an executive that can be a change agent than have 100 calls with people that are really, really interested, but can't really do anything. So that's, Jiu-jitsu, that's jujitsu infused sales, that's sales jujitsu. And you do that one thing, the strongest lever, it's the executive, it's the change agent, it's the person that has the vision, the person that you can trust to make the changes that your organizations are seeking to do together. So when I think about sales, I think about jujitsu, and I think about jujitsu when I think about sales, and that's the, the way to accelerate the sales motion and to get more done and close the deal faster. 
Is there a, a say a piece of advice or a mentor or somebody that has is sort of uh, that you carry with you that sort of you lean on in times of difficulty or moments where you there's uncertainty and you don't know kind of which which decision to make or what frog is next or just what what, what kind of advice do you kind of carry around? Okay, so I think that there's sort of an army I've deputized to be my personal board of directors, I would say. I would say prior sales mentors are always good people to bounce stuff off of. You also want to talk to people that you disagree with or you can disagree with or might disagree with. People that say, for example, don't have the same risk profile as you, for example, you want to hear from all people across the spectrum of opinions out there. So I would say that I have a small army of people that I can use as sounding boards or as extra strategists, I would say. If I had to pick one person, and this is going to sound so cheesy, <laughs> it's my future self. I would say, hey, future self, what do you think I should do here? What would you like to be proud of, of what I'm doing today? What does that look like? And that's who I really have the first conversation with. And then I go to other people because, again, going back to self-trust, that's a process of asking your higher self or your intuition or your gut and following that direction. That's, that's what building self-trust looks like. So that's where I go to first. And then my army of mentors and potential coaches and former colleagues. David, this has been a fantastic conversation. I feel like I've learned a ton about just myself and about you along the way. Um, coming into this, we've been planning to come in and have this conversation for a couple of weeks. Is there anything that you wish that I would have asked that you didn't have the opportunity to, to, to showcase? That's the question I asked to my customers. <laughs> what question should I have asked that I did not ask? You know? <laughs> I think, and this is maybe a more challenging conversation, I think there's a question around... Thoughts, opinions, pontifications inside of academia or in the domain of academia and how academia is moving forward. What ought academia think about strategically going forward in terms of intersection with community, government, science and other institutions? I think there's something there potentially to be discussed. Can we dig into it a little bit? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm just looking for your permission. Yeah, first. <laughs> yeah. Please. I mean, I'd love to. The, certainly, universities sit at an intersection of really important, complicated, important things, uh, and certainly, as established organizations, like all established incumbent organizations, suffer from this concept of kind of weight of incumbency and the, how do you sort of innovate and kind of get out of the track that you're in to address the future needs of students, faculty, et cetera. And so, yeah, what, what have you observed and what, what do you think are some of the opportunity sets for sort of universities at large? So I'm going to speak broadly here. So I'm not casting darts at any particular person or any particular institution. What I am seeing from my particular vantage point is the lack of leadership and sort of respect for what academia and the university once was. It used to be starting about the 1100s, a bastion of a safe space to develop knowledge and to pursue knowledge without having to worry about where's my next basket of corn or wheat going to come from? How am I going to eat that day? 
And that was a very noble cause. And as we progress forward, I think that that concept still is very much valid. And for academia to be relevant going forward, that protective layer for people that are pursuing knowledge must stay there. It must stay there. This relentless pursuit of the bottom line and the and the profit is it's doesn't carry the day anymore. It's not going to cut the mustard in terms of what we need for humanity to evolve and progress. We need people that are not concerned about being censored, not concerned about free speech, not concerned about does this fit into a larger agenda? People that can pursue ideas that are going to protect the species going forward and create a better future. We must have that. And so we must get back to being an institution that is creating the future and is not reacting to what is happening writ large. That's what I would like to see. And I think that starts with conversations with leaders in academia, with folks like ourselves, with board members such as yourself. Come onto the podcast. Let's talk about it. What are the talk tracks and messages that need to get out there, that need to get at the forefront Rice and its ilk need to be at the avant-garde of the progression of humanity, not at the back. We need to be at the tip of the spear. And that's my message. I like it. Certainly things that uh, I'm sure organizations are, are thinking about and considering. And, and uh, like many organizations over the last couple of years impacted by the pandemic, an opportunity to sort of step off the, the hamster wheel, so to speak, and rethink models, outcomes, engagement, and certainly as alumni restack their priorities and think about uh, what their sort of future involvement and engagement looks like, a lot of those historical paradigms are kind of irrelevant. And mm -hmm. what is it that we can learn from them and sort of move on from? Something that comes up for me too, and this is tangential, but on the I'll Have You Know podcast one, which is my personal favorite with Bethany Andel, she talks about conscious capitalism. And this is exactly what I'm talking about is thought leaders like Bethany that are going out and saying, again, the bottom line is not the bottom line. <laughs> you know, it's how are we impacting communities, right? We don't need more widgets and iPhones and doohickeys. We need impact on people and our communities first and foremost. That's the whole point of business. That's what it's there for. And it's the fastest way to create change. If you're waiting on government to make your life better, you're wrong, period. Wrong, right? It's business that is going to create change first. So listen to episode one and shoot Bethany a note and tell her how much she loved it. <laughs> she was awesome. <laughs> That's fantastic recommendation. Certainly for those that are catching the podcast uh, now, lots of opportunity to go back and, and listen to some of those stories. Those are fantastic stories and great perspectives and things that that idea of conscious capitalism, you see sort of venture funds that are out there that talk about the double bottom line, that it's not just the, the, the PNL, but that it's also achieving some kind of mission, some, some kind of outcome for humanity and how, how critical that becomes. And I think that you're seeing a lot of talent self-select and migrate in that direction. And as that happens, 
your your challenge to the university systems is to be aware of that and to and to address the needs in educating and facilitating the environment from which those ideas can come forward and those connections can be made and that the community at large can help to evolve humanity into sort of its uh, its its next state and era i mean that's a that is the the highest of ambitions and on that too transparency is the answer i mean if trust is too loaded for you just start with transparency okay <laughs> you know and, and that goes for the university systems it goes for science that goes for government and everything in between start with transparency let people know what you're looking to do what your vision is where are the pockmarks, where you're missing the mark, and what you're looking to do better. Have conversations with people that are willing to have conversations. I'll send you a Twitter saying, hey, Mr. or Mrs. CEO, let's have a chat. I'm really curious. I would like to know. Let's have better conversations and more of them. This whole closed door thing where decisions are made in dark, smoke-filled rooms, it's not going to carry the day anymore. We need better faster, higher quality, higher trust conversations, and we need it yesterday. Fantastic. David, it's been a privilege to be here and have this conversation. I want to encourage those that haven't had an opportunity to subscribe, to do so, dig into the podcast, send recommendations. David and Christine co-host, I'll have you know, and we're just uh, thrilled to be able to kind of pull this together. Anything that you would want to say to the audience? Yeah, one last thing. Just a general reminder. Again, my Trust Manifesto that I wrote, it's clear text, and so it's not an ebook, right? It's just trustmanifesto.energy. Type it in your browser. It'll pull up right now, trustmanifesto.energy. And my call to action there is send me a message but preferably a, vo- a volley so it's a video message so talk.volley.app slash david send me a message that number one you've read it number two how do you build trust faster what does building trust look like to you and let's have a conversation about that especially if you're a leader in your community and if you don't want to do that then send it to a leader in your community to do the same thing and then send me a volley on talk.volley.app slash david <laughs> so that's my call to action create a movement i love it absolutely all right david it's been a privilege thank you for having me hey folks thanks for tuning in to i'll have you know this is your co-host david drew Gleaver. Thanks for subscribing if you have, and if you haven't, please subscribe to check out future episodes of I'll Have You Know. If you'd like to leave me feedback or send me a message, send me a note on LinkedIn, or preferably send me a volley, a video message at talk.volley.app slash David. Again, it's talk.volley.app forward slash David. Thanks for tuning in.